Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Daniel Leviton. I'm the founding dean of arts and humanities at Minerva Schools at the Keck Graduate Institute, and I'm really excited to be here moderating this program today. I'm so pleased to be joined by psychologist Russell Poldrack to discuss his new book, Hard to Break, Why Our Brains Make Habits Stick. Poldrack is a professor of psychology and the principal investigator at the Poldrack Labs at Stanford University. His research focuses on the tools of cognitive neuroscience to understand how decision-making, executive control, and learning and memory are implemented in the human brain. This is particularly exciting for me personally because Russ and I overlapped at Stanford, uh, both working in the Neuroimaging Center where we were just starting out. And I've just been a super fan of his elegant and eloquent and rigorous cognitive neuroscience work ever since then. Uh, The the little secret around the Stanford Neuroimaging Center back then was that Russ was somebody to really keep an eye on and uh, he is not disappointed. Hard to break attempts to understand how to break bad habits that seem nearly impossible to crush. Brain is a habit building machine and to curb unwanted behaviors, we have to use evidence-based strategies to build healthy habits. Easy fixes to stop irregular sleep schedules, tobacco use, skipping meals, or procrastination are rarely effective, but Poldrack is using science-backed research to provide a deeper understanding of the brain and how we might be able to make the changes we desire. We'll be be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask your questions, too. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. Dr. Poldrack, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Happy to see you virtually and uh, have a chance to discuss the book. Well, let's start uh, with a, a softball question. What are the first steps people need to take if they want to break a habit? Um, I don't think that's a softball, actually. <laughs> um, well, I this think is that the Commonwealth the, Club. Yeah, right, right. Um, the I think that the first key, you know, to breaking any habit is understanding the habit, getting some insight in particular to what the triggers are. So, you know, what defines a habit is something that like we do in a particular situation sort of automatically without thinking about it, right? We're just, we're kind of triggered by some features in the environment to do something, right? You know, I, um, you know, I sit down at my computer and I immediately start pressing the check my mail button, right? Because it's what I've done before so many times. Um, Even though usually nothing comes up because I just checked it 30 seconds ago, right? Um, And one of the, I think, you know, one of the points that comes out of the book is that, um, and it comes out of a lot of research in the last few decades is that, you know, we often think about like the important aspect of like, you know, getting rid of habits as sort of like suppressing or overriding the habit, like stopping ourselves from doing the thing. The reality is like, if you're already doing the thing, it's often just like well beyond, you know, our prefrontal cortex that allows us to stop is just weak compared to our habit system. And so once the habit is sort of started, it's really hard to stop it. So the probably the best way to prevent oneself from engaging in a habit is to never let the habit get triggered, right? And so you can think about that as like sort of designing your environment to help you avoid, you know, your worst tendencies, right? To uh, And I, sometimes that's easier done than others, you know, as you were talking about it and the idea that the prefrontal cortex is weak, it reminded me of the work of our, uh, our, our, our colleague, um, Lee Ross and Mark Lepper, and before that, uh, Amos Tversky uh, at Stanford Psychology on this idea of decision-making and in particular belief perseverance, the idea that if you come to hold some belief and the evidence is later pulled out from under you, it is very, very hard to get your prefrontal cortex to say, oh, I don't believe that anymore. And yeah. Do you see a, a direct parallel there? Definitely. No, I think that, you know, we, we often think about habits in terms of like actions, but I think you can, you know, equally as well think about like habitual 
thoughts, you know, habitual beliefs, uh, habitual desires, right? So in some sense, like, you know, you, you can think of what's going on in addiction as not so much the, you know, the actions of like obtaining the drug being habitual, because the way that you might go about obtaining the drug each time is can be very different, but it's really the, the craving for the drug and the desire, uh, you know, and the, the power of the, of the drug to, to kind of drive one to want to get it. Um, and similarly, exactly in this case that, you know, there are, there are things, there are thoughts we come to have and, you know, you know things like obsessive compulsive disorder are sort of like the, the extreme of this, right. Where individual thoughts become so habitually engaged that they're, you know, that, that it can, you know, sort of really, uh, impair someone's life. Um, and and it, it's interesting because you know one of the one of the things that defines habits for scientists who study them is that uh, like if we want to know is something a habit, we basically try to tell whether the like you know usually when we have a when we engage in an action it's towards some goal right we do you know I go get f- something to eat out of the refrigerator because I'm hungry right. Um, or you or you got in a fight and you're stress eating. Right, exactly. Right, it's going to do. It, I have. It's going to do something for me. Right. Um, when we talk about habits, the thing that defines habits is that they become sort of unmoored from our goals. So we do them simply because we're in the situation, um, regardless of whether we want the thing or not. Right. And then you can see this, like with the people study this in rats, where they, you know, they'll train a rat to do something, like to go press a lever to get some food. And then, like, just make the rat so give it a bunch of cheese or something, make it really full, so it doesn't really want the food anymore. If it's been trained on that and, and on that behavior, and it's become a habit. It'll go press the lever, even though it doesn't want the food, right? Because that's just what it does in that situation. Um, and so that's why it becomes really hard to break. That's one of the reasons it becomes really hard to break habits because they don't. The habit doesn't care about whether you're getting anything out of it or not, right? And so the fact that it doesn't work for you anymore doesn't really make it go away. And it, it touches them on intermittent reinforcement. Maybe you could unpack that for us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, so right. Well, we know about intermittent. So by intermittent reinforcement, we mean kind of you get the reward sometimes and not others. And um, we know that that leads to, in general, to much more long lasting uh, behaviors and habits. And that's, that kind of helps, you know, there's various ways to understand what's going on there, but, but certainly it is the case that, you know, that that kind of, reduces the expectation that you're going to get a reward each time. And so then, you know, when you don't get one, you don't, you don't know whether it's because the thing isn't really rewarding or do you, this just isn't the, the one time out of 10, you're going to get the reward. I, I, I've heard a number of people who are former heroin addicts, people who actually lived long enough to talk about mm-hmm. having quit that that first time that they took, it was amazing. And then every other time after that, they were trying to get back there and they never did. Right. And, it, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the interest in addiction right now has to do with, uh, you know, these ideas about sort of how the brain, you know, the brain sort of tries to keep itself in balance, right? And when you're kind of overloading it with all these neurotransmitters, what it does is it turns down its response to them, right? And so instead of now, you know, you take the drug not to get up from where you would have started, but really just to get back to your set point because everything is getting turned down. Sounds like me and coffee. Right. (laughs) Um, Well, so you told us a bit about how, why it's difficult for people to break habits. Um, Is there anything else on that front? On the why, Um, the underlying... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot about there's a lot we know about the underlying neuroscience, um, and and in part it is about so there, there's this interesting thing whenever we develop a behavior in a particular situation where um, it the first thing that we learn kind of becomes our default, and whenever we go to learn whenever we want to learn something new, so let's say that I you know the first time I I met a the first time I met a dog it you know bit me and i i've had a phobia of dogs since then right um and um and now i want to go like you know learn to like dogs and so i'm going to go you know spend some time with a particular dog and slowly you know kind of get to know it and and hopefully get over my fear of dogs desensitization Um, back to stanford psychology and exactly right right exactly um so there actually you know the the situation i'm talking about is is actually one that was tested by um, Michelle Krask and her colleagues at UCLA 
um, she studies anxiety disorder and she wanted to study spider phobia. So she brought people into the lab and, and showed that, you know, basically who said they were afraid of spiders and basically over time desensitized them to like, ultimately they had like a tarantula crawling on their hand. Right. And then she, so what's interesting is that that first learned behavior, the phobia is remains the default. And like when one learns to kind of, you know, suppress the, the phobia, that learning is really context specific. So the way that she showed this was she brought people back some amount of time later to see how well the, the, um, their ability to like, you know, deal with the spider remained. Some of the people she brought back into like exactly the same room with exactly the same experimenter. Other people went to a different room with a different experimenter and even like changing rooms caused people to lose some of that sort of, you know, some of the benefit of that therapy. Um, so it's, it's like, as if, you know, the first thing you learn becomes kind of the general response and anything you learn after that, that sort of overrides that is a much more specific thing. And that's why it's, you know, we know that like treatment for, for phobias, you know, is sort of notoriously likely to, um, to, to fail when people get out, it works well in the clinic and then they get out in the real world and it's much harder. Um, and we think that's, that's part of the, the reason. I mean, another aspect of, of habits that I think also ties into, you know, why they're so hard to break is, is exactly because they become mindless, right? We just don't think about them. And if you don't think about it, you don't, you don't have a chance to do anything about it. Um, in the book, I talk about a, a, a thing that happened uh, about a decade ago. My wife and I were in, um, in New Zealand. We we're driving from Christchurch up to Marlborough up in the north. And I, I'd never really driven on the left side of the road before. Um, and, and I thought I was doing pretty well. It was on this like little windy mountain road, like, you know, through the, through the mountains there. And, um, we ended up, there was a, there was an area of construction and they, they, it was one of these things where you stop at the light to wait for the cars to come through and everything went down to one lane. And that one lane was the right lane, right? So I get on that right lane and I'm driving along. And then at some point the construction ends, but I didn't realize it. I just kept driving on the right for like some number of miles until we almost had a head on collision. Fortunately, everybody's going slowly because it's so like, you know, windy. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's really powerful how like, you know, when, when a habit like driving on the right side of the road, which, you know, is really well ingrained when you get to that age, um, you just don't think about it. This idea of first impressions, uh, how, how would you relate this to Malcolm Gladwell's idea of blink? Um, I think it's, it's an interesting question is, I don't know that this really, um, I mean, I mean, it may well be related to that. I think that this is really about like, you know, actions rather than necessarily impressions. I've, I don't know of any work that kind of relates those two. It's an interesting idea. They may well be, you know, related to one another. The fact that, you know, we do uh, rely so much on kind of very quick impressions. Um, well, like your, your example of the, the dog. That, yeah. That's not necessarily an action per se. It's a, it's no, a, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, they may. I, I don't know if they're the same mechanism. They, that's an interesting question. They may well be. Uh, so it sounds as though. I mean, I think it's uh, at least <laughs> one of the interesting things, of course, about psychology and neuroscience is that what might seem obvious uh, is often wrong. The, the obvious thing seems to be if I want to break a habit, I have to exercise better self-control. Right. Um, is that true? And if so, how do I do that? Right. Um, it, I mean, it is the case, right, that all things being equal, if you exercise more self-control, you're probably likely to be, you're more likely to be able to stop the habit. But in general, we don't think that like willpower or self-control is sort of really the key to making changes in behavior. Um, and in part, that's because um, we, the way that we, so let me, let me tell you about an interesting study that uh, Wilhelm Hoffman and his colleagues had, did a few years ago, which, you know, kind of changed how people think about the role of sort of self-control in um, and how it relates to our kind of day-to-day lives. So they, they, they gave people questionnaires, asked them a bunch of questions like, you know, do you make impulse buys at the grocery store? Or do you say things without thinking? And they use those to kind of quantify something like each person's level of self-control. You can kind of rank people from, you know, the, the really highly controlled ones to the really uncontrolled ones. Then they gave them all devices. I think they gave them Blackberries because it was like, you know, 10 years ago. And they, several times a day, the, the device would buzz at them and it would ask them a question. It was basically say, have you, have you felt any desires in the last 30 minutes? 
If so, did you try to suppress the desire? And if you tried to suppress it, were you successful at suppressing the desire? And so they, you know, they get a bunch of these over the course of a period of time. It turns out that the, so if, if, you know, self-control was really about like suppressing your, your, you know, your action in the context of desires, then you would expect that the people who have better self-control would be out like, you know, suppressing their desires more often out in the world. That didn't turn out to be the case. Um, the big difference between the people who have high self-control and the people who have low self-control was really how many desires they claimed they experienced, that the people with low self-control said they, had, they experienced a lot more desires. Um, and so, you know, we don't really know what's driving that, right? It could be that, um, that people who, you know, have high self-control just differ in such a way that they don't have as many desires or that they're better at kind of avoiding the the things that they des that they desire, but they know that they shouldn't do. Um, but regardless, it suggests that like you know, self control doesn't really seem to be so much about our ability to kind of you know suppress our desires once we uh, once we experience them. And really, it's about not having them in the first place. Um, we've also done work in the last couple of years that's looked at just looked at differences between people in how good they are at stopping themselves on experimental tasks where you have to you know, for example press a button, but then occasionally like stop yourself from pressing it really quickly. Um, and then we also measured a lot of things about these people in terms of their real world behavior. Do they smoke? Do they drink too much? Uh, you know, what's their household income, all this sort of stuff. And it turns out that um, the ability to stop oneself in the moment doesn't seem to be related to all of those, uh, all those other outcomes. Uh, Maybe you could tell uh, our audience about GABA receptors and then tell us whether uh, you think they have any role to play in all of this. That's interesting. So GABA is the main sort of inhibitory receptor in the brain, right, um, that helps kind of, you know, calm things down. It's the target of things like Xanax. Um, it's, it's not a, a receptor that's actually been... Um, of a ton of interest um, because people have been mostly, I mean, in part because, you know, we've been mostly kind of focused at the circuit level of trying to understand like what, uh, you know, how do different systems in the brain, how do different parts of the, particularly of the, the basal ganglia, um, how do they interact with one another? Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a, there's kind of a, a constant bath of, you know, GABA along with a bunch of other neurotransmitters. And actually, you know, to be honest, most of the focus there has been on, or the, the heaviest focus has been on dopamine. Uh, you know, Vaughn Bell referred to dopamine as the Kim Kardashian of neurotransmitters. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the, the, I, I, you know, just to, for the sake of the audience, I, I think of myself as a systems neuroscientist, not a neurochemist, although I have some interest in neurochemistry and like you, uh, I've done some studies on it. I, I suspect that you also are a systems neuroscientist too, meaning that we're looking at circuitry. We're not looking at individual neurons. We're looking at collections of millions of them together and how they operate. Uh, but to the extent that we think about and talk about neurochemicals, uh, you know, I, I, there, there are probably a hundred different neurochemicals and we only have tools to study maybe six or seven of them. <laughs> So those six or seven get a whole lot of attention. And number That's one right. on the list is dopamine, which drives me crazy. Because, <laughs> I mean, if you were to just read the newspaper uh, or, you know, Scientific American or what have you, dopamine does everything. It washes the dishes. It uh, helps wake you up in the morning. It makes you feel good when you eat chocolate. I mean, it just does absolutely everything there is to do. Um, but you know, our tools for measuring dopamine are a lot better without actually going in somebody's brain and especially in humans. You know, we've got uh, radioactive tags that we can do pet studies with it. Where do you think all this is going to go uh, it, technologically and, and conceptually in terms of those other 93 neurochemicals? Yeah. I mean, you know, dopamine is clearly important, right? It's, you know, it does, it, it's super complicated. You know, there's what five different classes of dopamine receptors in the brain. So even in different parts of the brain, dopamine is doing different things depending on which particular transmitters it's hitting, but you're exactly right. There's lots of other stuff. And I think, you know, in, um, 
in neuroscience work that, you know, looks at things at the cellular and molecular level, you know, obviously there's a lot more power to go after those, you know, other types of neurons. And, um, and there's a lot of that work going on. And the, the real challenge is, you know, relating that back to humans, right? So if somebody discovers some particular, you know, uh, set of neurons in the brain that, you know, uh, signals using, um, you know, I don't, I don't even know, you know, what the uncommon neurotransmitter would be, but some, you know, sort of uh, not so popular neurotransmitter, how we then, you know, understand, relate that back to humans, since we can't necessarily go in and measure those things. Now, sometimes we, you know, if we learn that a new neurotransmitter is of interest, then the, you know, the, the chemists can actually try to put together tags to try to then, you know, tag something that'll attach to that neurotransmitter receptor with, you know, radioactive materials, and then we can image it. Obviously, that's, you know, there are a lot of challenges with that type of imaging, and there has to be enough of it in the brain. You know, if there's just a tiny amount of it in the brain, it's going to be really challenging. That's the nice thing about dopamine is at least in the basal ganglia, there's so much dopamine that it's, you know, the signals are just, you know, mind-blowingly big when you image the stuff. Um, well, and I think that, I think that people, uh, I, I think that journalists and other people who write about it don't always talk about how, you know, if the level of, of one neurotransmitter increases or decreases, it's going to modulate dozens of others that they're not, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, Anderson from Caltech. It's this whole thing about how your brain is not just a bag of chemicals, right? I mean, uh, it's, there's this delicate choreography that we're just beginning to be able to figure out. And I suspect that um, the topic of habit is going to be one of the, the big areas of discovery. What do you think will be, I mean, you, you've got some privileged access to what's going on in your lab and other labs in this. What do you think the big findings are likely to be in the next couple of years? I think that, you know, I think that in terms of like deep understanding of habits, I'm sure that they're largely going to come from studies in mice um, using, you know, all of these amazing tools that have been developed in neuroscience in the last couple of decades for controlling uh, neuron, controlling the activity of neurons. And in particular, this thing called optogenetics, right? So basically somebody figured out that you can, take an ion channel out of like an algae, right? And, and use various forms of genetic engineering to put it into the neuron of a, of a, of a mouse. And then when you shine light on that neuron, it causes the, of a particular, you know, wavelength, it causes that neuron to become active, or you can put in a different ion channel, shine light, and it causes that neuron to become inactive. And you can, target these things, you know, incredibly precisely. So for example, I mentioned, you know, different types of dopamine receptors. Um, for, for decades, there was this idea that there's these two pathways through the basal ganglia, one of which is we think of as like the go pathway, which kind of drives you to do something. Another we think of as the no-go pathway, which drives you to like not do something. And people have had long thought that those, like the cells in those different, you know, pathways had different types of dopamine receptors on them, but nobody could really tell until this, these optogenetic tools came about. And then one could like, you know, put selectively put the optogenetic channels into either the D1 neurons or the D2 neurons and turn them on or off individually. And that lets you see really clearly that those two pathways do exactly that. One of the, the great achievements of your book, I think, is that you mix personal stories like your driving on the wrong side of the road story with this cutting edge stuff that most people don't know about, uh, uh, including optogenetics. Um, but it also has this practical side, uh, which is a strength, of course, uh, for, for all of us, for scientists and non-scientists alike. You write that the modern world makes bad habits harder to break. What is it about the modern world? Um, you know, it's. We, I think that it's largely about you know the the degree to which we have we experience stimuli that are just more powerful than 
we experienced through most of our evolutionary history, right? So the, just think about the food that we eat today. It's like engineered to, it's ultra processed and engineered to be so highly palatable. You know, obviously walking around, you know, if you were, you know, a paleo human walking around uh, the savannah, there was probably some good stuff to eat occasionally, right? You might, uh, you know, find a nice piece of fruit or pull some oysters out of the ocean or whatever it is that, that you were eating. But, you know, the availability and the, the palatability of, uh, of food is just, you know, orders of magnitude higher right now. The sine qua non is drugs, right? That we, we have these things, you know, cocaine, methamphetamine are probably the, 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 the two clearest ones where they're just directly acting on the dopamine system to make there be more dopamine in your brain for a short period of time. Um, and, you know, we just weren't, we weren't equipped for that, right? And so we had this system that was like, well tuned within this like milieu in which, you know, humans and before them, lots of other animals had lived for like, you know, millions of years. And suddenly in the last couple hundred years, you know, everything just gets turned up to 99. Um, and, um, and it's, you know, the, the, the question of whether like, you know, digital devices or or driving the same type of responses. I think it's still, there's not really good evidence that, you know, dopamine is kind of, you know, being, for example, that, you know, that devices have been engineered to drive dopamine, right? They probably do. Um, I think they've been engineered to drive attention um, and that, you know, they probably are driving dopamine, but, you know, all of these things seem to lead to, um, because dopamine plays a central role in the development of habits, um, and I, I, I go into, you know, a bit of detail in the book about exactly, how, you know, how this works in the brain. Um, those, those stimuli just have so much more power to, to drive the, um, the creation of habits. So when you talk about, um, say, food being much more palatable and things like that being, uh, and all the other factors in the modern world that our brains weren't equipped to handle, makes me think of a book uh, that came out a few years ago called A Billion Wicked Thoughts, which is about porn. Hmm. And, you know, porn addiction, which is a real addiction. Uh, can you comment on that? I, I don't know anything about, uh, I haven't read that book, and I don't know any of the work on that, so I can't really say anything of, uh, other than speculating. So. I mean, it, it makes sense, right, that, you know, the availability of those images, that there it's really kind of the variety, right, probably more than the you know, um, than the intensity, right? Um, yeah, it's hard to say, but I mean, I think that the difficulty is that uh, with with porn, which uh, I'm I'm told depicts certain things, uh, the issue is that uh, you've got access to so much variety that uh, we right. never evolved to have, right? Uh, and that variety, of course, um, from a, an evolutionary genetic standpoint is, is what's uh, caused our ancestors to seek partners uh, and, and spread their, uh, their genes. And it's kind of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an onslaught, another, another um, aspect of the modern world that we have access to stuff right. that we didn't evolve to deal with. Um, and, and it's sorry, and it's, it's worth mentioning that you know we we actually know that the dopamine system, in addition to responding to rewards and things that predict rewards, it also responds to just novelty, to new stuff, right? And so, to the degree that you're that you know you're experiencing a a, a level of variety that's kind of beyond what we evolved to experience, that's another you know potential thing that could be driving uh, you know the development of these sort of habits. Um. Moving on from that, uh, you published a paper in 2013 about how distraction modulates competing memory systems. This is your PNAS paper. Yep. Uh, let's unpack this for everybody. Uh, to start with, uh, maybe you can tell us about declarative memory versus habit memory. Yeah. So, there, you know, one of the things that we've learned in the, the probably the last four decades in neuroscience is that memory in the brain isn't one thing, right? It's at least two things. Um, and the, the fault lines are really kind of our memory. You know, when, when, people, when people think of memory, they think of like, you know, remembering what they had for breakfast this morning, remembering where they parked their car. Uh, that's what, what neuroscientists call declarative memory. 
um, you know, famously sort of understood through studies of uh, HM, this, you know, kind of well-known um, uh, person who had a part of their brain removed and ended up being amnesic for the rest of their life. So we know that, you know, particular structures in the temporal lobes of the brain are responsible for that kind of memory. But what we learned starting in the, actually starting from studies of HM, but really became clear in the 1980s, is that um, people with that type of brain damage who, you know, can't remember having seen you three minutes ago, can learn new skills and habits perfectly normally. Um, HM... For example, um, you know, he uh, at some point, oh, he had a hip replacement and he had to learn to use a walker and he couldn't remember having, you know, having uh, ever, you know, had the hip replacement surgery and didn't know, you know, why he needed the walker, but he was able to learn to use the walker just fine. Um, whereas there are, there are other right. cases. So he, would, he would see it uh, and he would say, what is this? I've never used this before, but then they actually put him behind it and his accumulated right. His accumulated experience shows that he really had learned the procedural exactly. motor parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, right. So then, on the flip side is you know all of the stuff that we're that we're learning that doesn't involve sort of you know explicitly remembering the past, right? And that's habits are part of that. There's other you know we think about things like skills, like your ability to read, right? You don't think back to all the times you've read before when you read. You just you know you've done it enough now that you just do it, right? Um, and um, and those those types of uh, skills, habits, you know, rely on a number of different brain systems, depending on exactly what they are, but the basal ganglia play a central role in a lot of them. And so what we know is that, you know, individuals who have brain disorders that affect the basal ganglia, like uh, Parkinson's, like Parkinson's disease, which affects the, uh, you know, dopamine in the basal ganglia or Huntington's disease, which causes, you know, a death of certain cells in the basal ganglia. Um, people with those disorders tend to be worse at learning new skills or habits and relatively fine at actually like consciously remembering the past. It's fascinating, isn't it? So let's, what you, one of the things that you do in the, that article we're talking about uh, is you tie it into distraction, these different memory systems mm-hmm. um, and how if we are attempting to multitask, let's say, uh, it, it affects our memory systems. This is, this is such a, uh, an interesting thing. Would it be fair to say that if you're multitasking, it causes the memories of what you're doing to potentially go to the wrong parts of the brain? That's a, that is certainly an interpretation of that, of that research. Yeah. I think that it's not the generalizability of that, you know, how far it goes beyond this particular lab situation is remains to be seen. But I think it's certainly what well, the, the one thing that we do know for sure is that, you know, doing things under distraction causes, you know, impairs your ability to consciously remember them. Um, and it, and it does seem to, at least based on that research to cause you to learn it in a more, um, kind of inflexible way. We generally think of the habit, the, the great thing about the, the, the conscious declarative memory system is that it's really flexible. You can use memories in various different ways. Um, you can retrieve them. You know, if I ask you, like, you know, think about your uh, third grade classroom, you know, most of us can probably think back and do that, even though you haven't thought about it in many years. Whereas habits are much more tied to specific situations or at least specific contexts, right? You're not going to, like, you, you, your habit of riding a bicycle is only going to be engaged when you get on a bicycle, right? It might be different bicycles, but it's not going to get engaged when you're, like, you know, walking down the street. Well, so um, if somebody wanted to become a musician or improve their musical skill and they wanted to practice scales, um, does it suggest then that this, this motor activity uh, of learning a scale uh, is better done under a condition of distraction since you don't necessarily need the declarative memory, the ability to talk about it. You just need to get the motor thing happening. It's, it's an interesting question. I mean, there's been, I, I think we don't, we don't fully know. Um, there, you know, there were, there are a lot of ideas about tra- like a transition from initial reliance on conscious memory to, um, you know, to procedural habit memory in the long run. Um, and, and I, you know, I think it's, my guess is that at, you know, 
if you try to do that too early in learning, you're basically going to sort of, you know, overload and because you do need, you know, to hold in for like, if I'm learning a scale, I have to like really keep when I'm first learning it, like, you know, I'm trying to learn modes on the guitar or something. I really have to like keep in mind exactly where I'm going. Right. Um, until I kind of get it down well enough that, uh, that it just happens on its own. It's, there's probably some point in there in which um, adding, so for example, one of the things we know about, uh, one of the factors that drives better learning is um, variability in, in practice. Um, that, you know, if, for example, learning to play on several different guitars is probably going to lead to better long-term skill than learning to play on a single guitar, right? Because it helps you sort of generalize. Um, the, the interesting thing is um, that there's, there's a lot of work showing that people, people don't actually have good insight into this, that often the things that we think are making us learn better are often like worse for long-term learning. So for example, this variability stuff, you know, when you're, um, when you're trying to do something and, and it's hard, you think, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing well. I'm not learning it very well. Right. Um, whereas if you're just playing on like your, you know, your one guitar doing your same scale over and over, it's going to feel easy. So you'll be like, oh, I've learned this, but basically when it feels easy, you're probably not really getting much out of it. Whereas like learning under variability or, um, another factor is spacing out in time, right. That one, probably the most powerful, um, I guess one of the two most powerful factors in learning is basically, uh, spacing things out in time. If you, if you have something to learn and you have like an hour to spend, you're much better off doing it in like six, 10 minute chunks that are spaced out in time and doing it in one 60 minute chunk. And that's because at some point you just kind of, you, you, it becomes too easy. Um, you, you don't have to work. And you need sleep to consolidate it, right? And you need sleep to consolidate. That's exactly right. I mean, what we know about, you know, all types of learning, including, you know, learning of things like skills and habits, as well as learning of, you know, conscious knowledge, um, is that uh, if you if you don't sleep, the the what we call the consolidation, basically, kind of the solidifying of those memories, uh, is is uh, is impaired compared to if you do sleep. Uh, taking a, a more of a, a thirty thousand foot view of all these things, um, this is your second book. Uh, it's uh, a book that I think. Um, is really like your, your first book, uh, both are really easily readable for people without any training in the field, but there's a lot in there for people with training in the field. Um, why did you write this particular book? Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I sort of felt, so I, I think I'm, you know, I, I like trying to write sophisticated scientific uh, literature for non-experts, right? I think it's, an, it's a really important thing for people who aren't scientists to be able to get their head around science. And, you know, unfortunately, there's often pressure to, you know, sort of make the, to, to make this stuff so oversimplified that it's sort of, you know, it becomes a cartoon of the science. And, and I, you know, I, so in both of my books, I really set out to, you know, to, to kind of lay out the science in a way that does it justice without require without jargon and without requiring you know somebody to have a phd to really understand what i'm talking about um and i felt like you know i did it effectively enough in the first book that i thought i could do it in this book and i thought that this was a story that needed to be told there's a you know there's a, a obviously there's a ton of books out there on habit right and a ton of, of good books i think on habit um but none of them really did any justice to the neuroscience None of them were really written by neuroscientists, you know, right, and right, um, right. and nobody had told the story. For example, like why, you know, what what role does dopamine play in building habits? Um, well, so let's talk about that. Uh, how do habits form? Yeah. Um, how much time do you have? <laughs> um, I think we have twenty minutes. Yeah. Right. Um, so you know, habits are the way that, let's just think about like, you know, act, hab, habitual actions, right? Like, you know, um, like my clicking of a, of a button on my computer. Um, you know, there's a set of systems in our brain that help us decide what to do, right? We call that action selection, like for do, figuring out, um, you know, for example, I come to a fork in the road, do I go left or right? 
Um, and basically what happens is, you know, our cerebral cortex is sending inputs down into our basal ganglia and you have different sets of inputs. One of them might be saying go left, one might be saying go right. And basically those kind of fight it out in the basal ganglia to figure out who's going to win. Um, and the one that wins determines what you do, right? And then you, you know, you do the thing and you might get a reward or you might not. Um, when you, when you get a reward, if it's unexpected, dopamine is going to be released. Um, we can come back and talk about, you know, the, the complexities of dopamine more maybe in a little bit, but, but if you get an unexpected reward, when you do something, dopamine gets released. And in particular, the, the basal ganglia is a, a very heavy target of dopamine neurons. So there are a ton of dopamine gets released into the basal ganglia. It turn and, and so the question is like, how does that, let's say that you take the left turn and then like, you know, you see what you were looking for on, you know, you're, let's say you're a bird watcher and you see this like rare bird on the road. Right. And so that's a big reward for you. Um, the dopamine goes into your basal ganglia and it turns out that dopamine. So when, when neurons, there's this idea in neuroscience called heavy in plasticity named after Donald Hebb, famous neuroscientist, which is basically the idea that like neurons that fire together, wire together. Like when one neuron causes another successfully causes another neuron to fire, their connection gets stronger in general. In the basal ganglia, that relies on dopamine. It only happens if there's also dopamine there. So the idea is like if the, the set of neurons that cause you to go left, they get some dopamine on them, their connection gets stronger such that next time it's easier for the left turn action to win that competition. Um, so... As we talk about habits, I suppose there are good habits and bad habits and neutral habits. Um, are there different underlying mechanisms for them? Different ways to develop the one and avoid the other? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think most habits are in the middle, right? There are these kind of like routines that we do every day, like, you know, um, getting up in the morning and going and making your coffee or doing whatever else you do in the morning and never thinking about, you know, what you're actually doing. Right. Um, and it's really only those outliers. Well, I can't think about ends. what I'm doing before I've had that cup of coffee. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. You're a complete creature of habit. It's your lizard brain uh, in action. Right. Um, so, so, you know, bad habits are clearly like the, the natural habit system gone wrong. Right. They're like these things where we have a stimulus that's outside of, our, you know, of our usual experience, be it, you know, cocaine or, you know, whatever gambling, whatever else it is that people become addicted to. Um, and I think it's, it's easy to explain those in terms of the standard habit system, basically just being kind of overwhelmed by the power of the stimulation of the world. Good habits are kind of an, what we call good habits, which are basically like things that you don't really get rewarded for, but you want to do, right? Um, like, you know, brushing your teeth or whatever, right? You know, flossing, right? The, all the things that we're supposed to do, exercising, all the things we're supposed to do, but we don't either, we don't want to do them or they're just kind of hard to remember to do. Um, the, the challenge there is that there's, there's not really that kind of like the, the dopamine hit that you get from a reward with, you know, these other types of habits where like, you know, you do something and, and it, it's sort of at least, you know, you accomplish your goal, you get your reward, whatever. Um, so when, what we talk about good habits, you know, what we're usually talking about is like behaviors that we have to control in a kind of a top-down manner. We really have to have our prefrontal cortex holding that goal in mind saying, do the thing, right? And if you do that long enough, then there's sort of, you know, enough, it becomes, you know, routine enough that the, ultimately the normal habit system we think can kind of, you know, pick that up, but it's just much harder because you don't have the, the kind of reward driving the development of that habit. Um, and I so, suppose. sorry, oh, I'm sorry. Say, so the key to, I think that to the degree that there's like a key to, um, to those types of habits, one, it's like, you know, again, designing the environment so that you can have as much support as possible. So for example, um, having a reminder, like if it's something that you just forget to do, it depends on like some habits are things like that. We, we know we need to do, but we just forget, right. Others are like, like, you know, like putting in my mouth guard, my bite guard every night, you know, before I go to bed. Right. Um, I just sometimes forget, even though I've been doing it for a year. Right. Um, but things like going to the gym, right. That's stuff that we can maybe remember and we know we should do, but you know, we just can't like 
get the energy. And I think those are, those are sort of different things. I think the second one is a lot harder to, to, um, you know, to, to know how to fix that. There are ideas, for example, like, um, temptation bundling, right? Like basically only allowing yourself to do something that you want to do. If it's in the context of something that, that you really like, if it's in the context of something that you kind of need to do, or don't want to do, right? Like you can only, you only watch yourself. You only let yourself watch the bachelor when you're on the treadmill at the gym, right? <laughs> so I think all this begs the question, um, how do you define a good habit versus a bad one? As a neuroscientist, I, psychiatrists may have a different right. view, but how do you see that? I, you know, it, to be honest, I don't. We don't really think that much about good versus bad in you know when we're talking about habits in neuroscience. In part because you know we either most of our work either studies kind of like boring day to day habits because those are easy to those are easier to study in the lab, or we study bad habits because you know we want to understand disorders like, you know, drug addiction or problem gambling or things like that. Um, we, there, there hasn't been as much attention, I think, to, uh, to good habits in, at least in my part of the world. I think people in social psychology have thought a little bit more about, you know, how to go about doing these things. And that's where these ideas like the temptation bundling idea come along. Um, in your own life, has, have you changed the, the way you live your life as a, uh, as a function of having done the research and writing the book? Um, not, a, I wouldn't say a lot. Um, I, you know, I think I, I feel like the biggest things probably, you know, are things I knew before I wrote the book. So for example, you know, knowing about the, the power of spacing and learning, like if I'm practicing guitar, I try to break it up as much as I can. And you know, knowing about, for example, the the power of um, of having to remember things when it's difficult to remember them, right? So that you know, everybody knows that flashcards work, right? And the reason that flashcards work is because it turns out that like pulling something out of memory is actually a really effective way to get it back into memory, right? Um, so those types of uh, those types of like you know facts from the science of learning, I think, have been really impactful for me to help me sort of learn things. Um, uh, you know, when it comes to like changing, you know, habits, I, I can't say that, you know, writing the book has really made me um, any more effective at doing it than others. I think that what, what it has, hopefully, you know, one of the things I think the book does, because it, you know, it, it isn't one of these like eight steps to, you know, get rid of your bad habits or to make good habits, right? It's really about like, you know, understanding why they're so hard to break. And maybe like, you know, providing a little empathy, both for yourself and for others, you know, who, who have trouble breaking habits and, you know, kind of providing an understanding of why it, why that is. Well, I think, I think that's particularly important. Um, I think that, you know, there are a lot of self-help books uh, to help people uh, change themselves. Uh, but my understanding of the self-help literature is that it's really, really hard to do it if you don't understand why you're doing it or how it all works. Uh, I mean, just look at all the people who join a gym in January uh, for the year because gyms only sell annual memberships because they learned that people pr pretty much stop going after March or April. And so um, the idea being that um, you have these intentions to do things, you heard that they're good, but you don't really know why. And so I think books like yours um, are an integral part of any kind of change, personality change, life change, habit change, uh, that you know, knowing the science, and as you say, knowing how difficult it is so that we don't beat ourselves up, which makes me wonder when you think about your own life, and your own habits, would you say that you're more focused on, to the extent that you're trying to do things different, maybe you're happy with the way things are, but to the extent that you're trying to improve yourself, do you focus more on cultivating good habits or getting rid of the bad ones or both? Hmm. I, um, well, I don't think much about good habits, I guess. And maybe it's just because I'm, I naturally sort of, you know, have them and don't have to, I don't know. I, I certainly, in terms of like the mind space uh, inside of me, um, bad habits 
and my desire to get rid of them gets more mind space than the desire to create good habits. Not that I'm particularly good at either of those, um, but uh, but I, I think I worry less about uh, good than bad. Um, what for for the uh, for all of us who have some bad habits that we want to change? How do we create an action plan to curb them? Um, I think so. Yeah, I think the first thing is like figuring out what what the triggers are like what you know what is the habit when is it uh you know what are the things that caught what are the situations in which it gets triggered what are the the situations where where it's easier for it to get for it to get triggered um or the stimuli that can that can cause it to to happen because that's the you know i think the most in general the most powerful tool for um i guess the most powerful tool for figuring out, you know, how to get rid of a habit is really sort of planning, thinking about, you know, one, what, what are the situations in which it happens and can I avoid them? If I can't avoid them, then um, coming up with, you know, almost like kind of doing mental simulations and thinking through how exactly am I going to avoid that habit happening? So if I'm a smoker, I have to go to a bar. How, what am I going to do when somebody offers me a cigarette, right? Um, the science, uh, psychologists call these implementation intentions, right? So basically how exactly, am, not, not like, oh, I don't want to smoke when I go to the bar, but what exactly am I going to do? Like the more specific the plan, the, the better, even though you may not hit that exact situation. Um, nonetheless, you know, kind of planning specifically is, is, is more effective. And then I guess the, the other thing to think about is, is sort of, um, tracking and getting feedback on what you're doing. It's like knowing whether your efforts are actually uh, paying off or not. You know, obviously in, in the context of weight loss, kind of, you know, regularly weighing oneself is the, the, you know, the version of that. But I think in any sort of, you know, habit that one wants to change, kind of keeping track of it and uh, is, is really important. And you touched on this idea about situational factors, uh, which I guess is related to associations you have with things. I think uh, people who are recovered alcoholics make it a point not to hang out with their drinking buddies because that's an association. It's a, 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 a kind of behavioral or associative trigger to the behavior they're trying to avoid. Um, same thing with, yeah, you're, you're, you've got to go to a bar, you're trying not to drink, but you get there. And I guess what happens, to, you know, to come back around to a concept we were talking about earlier is your willpower declines your self-control declines you see all these people doing this they seem okay i can just have one right Right. that guy had six maybe i could have six (laughs) yeah exactly there's a whole set of ways in which we're really good at like you know rationalizing behavior and fooling ourselves into thinking that um you know our will our self-control will be better this time than it's ever been in the past um and uh so so though, yeah, all those things kind of come together to make it, you know, kind of going back to the point I made with it, you know, once you're in the situation and you start doing it, it's basically, you know, uh, it's really hard to stop. And so that's why the planning part is like the really critical part. We touched on addiction. Um, I think most of us think of addictions as things that we're addicted to that are bad for us, being addicted to cocaine or being addicted right. to cigarettes. Um could you be addicted to something that's good for you or would you not call that an addiction? I, I, um, I guess I have to breathe, breathe oxygen, but I don't say I'm addicted to it. But right. what if I have to listen to music or play the guitar? Right. It's, you know, so when, when, um, you know, when psychiatrists talk about addiction, right, they talk about, um, you know, uh, a relationship with some sort of behavior or substance that is causing you know, some degree of problem for the person, some degree of, you know, unhappiness or, uh, you know, some other sorts of problems in their life, right? So in some sense, it depends on like, if you're, if your guitar playing is a problem, right, to the degree that you're like, you know, for you're like, not feeding the dog, like you're supposed to, or, you know, God knows what else you might not be doing, um, then you could imagine calling it a, an addiction. Um, the place where this question is becomes up comes up that's really interesting is the context of food addiction, right? We have to eat, right? Um, but but and a lot of people talk about you know the sort of concept of of food addiction, 
you know, um, like there's this famous quote from Oprah saying like, you know, food is my drug of choice, right? Um, and there's, there's remains a lot of controversy in the neuroscience literature about like the degree to which, I mean, clearly it's, you know, food addiction is a thing in the sense that it, you know, there are people who have a relationship with food that, um, that they're unhappy with, right? Um, and either because, you know, because they feel like they can't control themselves or because of its longer term effects. Um, it was, what's less clear is like whether the mechanisms behind food addiction are really the same as, uh, you know, mechanisms behind uh, other types of addictions. But it's, it does seem that there is a, you know, there's a set of people who basically have sort of like, a, you know, what, what some people have started to call uncontrolled eating, right? They basically just can't control their own eating behavior. And that's clearly, you know, a problem for them. Um, and so it's, it's a, you know, it's a, whether we call it an addiction or not, it's definitely a, you know, a, a problem that, that has to be dealt with. Um, but I, I don't think we really know yet exactly, like, you know, what the brain mechanisms are of that. Uh, as long as we're talking about uh, eating and, and weight, uh, it, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, when I was a kid, um, officially the psychiatric community saw homosexuality as a disorder. And it was largely believed that it was a choice that somebody made. Uh, and we no longer think that uh, uh, you—it's not a choice. You don't—you you don't try to deprogram people who say that they're gay uh, or anything along the LGBTQ spectrum. Uh, it, it is who they are. Um, I wonder if maybe we're due for a similar conversation about being overweight. We look at people who are overweight, many of us who are not overweight, and we think, oh, well, they just don't exercise self-control or they're making a choice. I'm, I have a hunch it's, it's not a choice uh, in the same way that being gay is not a choice, but I wonder if you have any, any thoughts about that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm far from an expert on obesity, but the one thing I know is that obesity is incredibly complex, right? And they're you know, just like, just actually like, you know, many other disorders that we think about, right? Um, you know, one can become obese for many different reasons, right? You can become obese because of your bad sleep schedule, because you have to work four jobs, right? You can become obese because you live in a food desert and all you can get is like ultra processed food. Uh, you can become obese because, you know, you think that eating a particular kind of food is good for you, right? And, uh, and it turns out that it's not. Um, and so there, and so, so there's lots of, I think there's lots of questions about like what causes a person to become obese. Certainly there's a subset of people who are obese where it's related to like eating behaviors. This is clearest in people who, so there's a diagnosis called binge eating disorder, right? Of people who basically go on like really hardcore, like, you know, eating binges um, and, you know, usually end up uh, being overweight. Um, but, uh, but I think my guess would be that it, you're exactly right, that it, you know, there's hardly anybody for whom it's a choice. And there um, is a behavioral habit component. Uh, I have yeah. a colleague who uh, is just in the habit of eating a sandwich right before he goes to bed at 10 o'clock at night. And uh, he did this for decades until he read that, well, that's, that's, that's why he got fat. In his own words, uh, the uh, and as soon as he broke that habit, which was hard to do, I mean, it, the whole act of sleeping was sort of tied in his mind and his body to the blood sugar changes right. of eating at ten o'clock, um, and that brings us to I think the topic of sleep, which we touched on briefly, habits surrounding sleep, good and bad habits. What does your work say about that? Uh, I have not done any work regarding sleep, so I can't, other than knowing the work on, you know, the role of, of sleep and its importance for like, you know, learning in general and learning habits in particular, um, I don't have anything to say, unfortunately, about sort of, you know, sleep habits. Well, I, I like it when uh, pundits don't talk about things they don't know about, which is all too rare. So thank you for that honesty. Uh, to what extent do you think that behavioral change in general is a public health issue? 
I think it's a huge public health issue. I mean, there's some number of years ago, uh, a set of uh, researchers came up with an estimate that something like 40% of um, of preventable deaths are basically, you know, somehow related to, uh, to behavior in some way. Smoking was the biggest one, right? If we could, if people could just like snap their fingers and stop smoking whenever they wanted to, you know, the levels of, uh, of lung cancer and, uh, you know, chronic lung diseases, not to mention heart disease would, you know, would plummet. Right. Um, and so, so it's clear that, that, you know, that, that is a huge problem. It's also clear what's really striking is if you look at the data from like the ability of, you know, behavior change programs in the 1970s to help people stop smoking or drinking and look at the same data from now, it's basically the same, right? About a third of people who try to stop something, be it, you know, alcohol or nicotine or whatever, about a third of them last a year, the, the first time they try it. Um, and that's a, you know, compared to the, you know, what's happened in the rest of medicine, that's just like a huge failing of, of, you know, of researchers who are trying to figure out behavior change. And we think part of that has to do with the, the, the kind of the ways that it's been conceptualized and studied. And that's why we think that like understanding the mechanisms, like the biological mechanisms of habit and self-control and all these types of things are, are, you know, just as like understanding the mechanism, the biological mechanism of cancer allowed us to come up with drugs that, you know, have like remarkably, at least in some cases, remarkably changed outcomes in cancer treatment. We think that the only way to get there for behavior change is to understand the underlying biological and psychological and social mechanisms. We had talked earlier about your motivation for writing the book. And of course, within academia, unless you're in a history department, uh, people tend to, people in science departments tend to frown on their professors writing books. Uh, and, and yet, uh, I think it's an important thing to do. You think it's an important thing. Um, what's been your experience of your colleagues and, and their views about you writing a book instead of just writing another PNAS or science paper? Right. You know, I've gotten a lot of positive and By the feedback. way, PNAS uh, is uh, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I should have right. clarified that earlier. Right. Um, I've gotten actually quite a bit of positive feedback. You know, a number of my colleagues have read my books and, um, you know, said, hey, I, I thought you did a really good job of this. I think that people appreciate, uh, you know, science writing when it's, uh, when it tries to be sophisticated. I think, I think the place where the, the place where there might be some, you know, sort of, uh, uh, where people might look askance is in, you know, books that are, that are like a little too um, cartoonish. Glib. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I've gotten, you know, I've gotten no explicit, uh, you know, negative feedback. And, and I think, I mean, I, partly, obviously it's where I am in my career, right. I'm at a, I'm at a point in my career where I can start writing, you know, trade books and, and then nobody's going to say, Hey, you need to, you know, you need to write another, uh, scientific paper. Yeah, no, you got your bona fides. Right. And we'll continue to amass them. Russ, this has been just such a, a treat for me, uh, and um, we're not over yet, but I'd like to um, ask some of the questions that the audience has been asking. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one is from an audience member, uh, pardon me for reading these, COVID made many of us develop new bad habits. Where is the line between be nice to yourself, you are just trying to survive, versus getting yourself to work out more, to, to log off your computer at a decent hour and things like that? Hmm. Um, I think the, the, the short answer is I'm not the right person to ask that question. Um, but I, you know, I think we, you know, the one thing to, to recognize is that, you know, the context has been very different in the last year, right? We've all spent much more time in our own homes than we ever had that most of us had in, in previous years. And so, um, so I think you do have to, you know, kind of give oneself a break um, in realizing that, you know, that we're all doing what we can do. The hope is that, you know, as the context changes back to look more like it did before, that at least some of these things can, you know, can sort of fade away um, and we can go back to, you know, whatever it is that we were doing before we, you know, um, before we became locked down. 
We, we did all develop new habits, of course. Uh, we stopped, most of us, we stopped traveling. Yeah. We stopped seeing our friends. We stopped going to restaurants. And as California has begun to unlock, um, it feels like we're all a little bit traumatized. I went out to a restaurant with my my wife and we uh, we didn't derive the same enjoyment from it we used to or thought we would. It was like, uh, this is such a, we, we, we're supposed to like it, but we don't. What's going on there? Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's hard to, to unpack that, I think, in part because, you know, the the restaurant experience is not what it was beforehand, right? That, you know, the servers are wearing masks and, you know, the, the whole the whole thing is still probably tinged with associated with a little bit of, you know, fear, even though, you know, I assume you're vaccinated and, you know, it's the risk is in, in San Francisco in general, the risk is very low. Um, you know, my, my suspicion based on, you know, the, the, some of the work that I've talked about is that a lot of these things will, will go back to feeling normal faster than we might expect, right. That we will be back in our, our first learned behaviors pretty quickly. Um, that's both a hope and a, you know, a, a, a guess based on at least a little bit of science. Well, I could go on with you for another hour at least. I know the audience probably could too, but we are at the end of our time. So on behalf of the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco, I'd like to thank Dr. Russell Poldrack, author of the new book, Hard to Break, why Our Brains Make Habits Stick, for joining us today. And we'd like to thank all of you in our audience for watching and for participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm Daniel Leviton. Thank you, and stay healthy. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.